Welcome to Sparks of History. Joining us today is acclaimed author and speaker, Professor Wilford Riley of Kentucky State University. Professor Riley has authored a number of books, including Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Stealing a Fake Race War, Taboo, 10 Facts You Can't Talk About, and The $50 Million Question. Professor Riley, thank you so much for being with us today. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Okay, we'll get right to it. Um, what exactly is woke culture, and how did it develop? How did we get here? Well, I, I think that uh, in response to Nina Turner, the socialist writer online, I once gave a three-part definition of woke that became fairly popular, uh, became an article for National Review. I've I've heard it used back to me. Uh, sense. So I'll go with that here. To me, wokeness, quote unquote, or wokeism is the idea that all of society, all of facially neutral appearing society in in particular, the USA is, in fact, structured to oppress. That's that's point one. And interestingly enough, the group that's being oppressed can vary. So all of this to me is kind of a lower IQ downstream variant on Marxism. So if you look at critical race theory, the idea is that all of society is structured to oppress, oppress blacks or maybe immigrants. So things that we see as just parts of social order, we have a criminal justice system to lock up domestic batterers and sex pests and so on, that in fact exists to keep as many minority men as possible incarcerated. If you're talking to a fourth wave feminist, all of society is structured to oppress women society is structured to oppress is part one, getting to the point. Part two, any gap in performance between large groups is due to this oppression. It's point two that really is the primary claim of an Ibram Kendi or Robin D'Angelo. So, I mean, like, for example, when I look at uh, group test score gaps on the SAT or any similar exam, you see uh, a clumping of minorities. You've got blacks at 943, Hispanics 961, natives 929. Then you've got whites about 1,000 or 1,100, actually. White Caucasians have improved. And then you have Asians at about 1,235. And what a quote-unquote woke person would normally do is just take the bottom four groups and say, well, the black-white difference or the white-Hispanic difference must be due to bias on the part of teachers or some problems with question wording on the test or something like that. So all group gaps, criminal justice is where you most often see this, actually, but are due to this institutional, subtle, Flagistan-like oppression that's out there. And then finally, three, the solution to the problem is what's called equity. So you simply institute measures that mandate proportional representation regardless of performance. And you you really do see this across the board. I mean, I trained as a lawyer. I graduated from U Illinois 2005. And proportional representation is a principle in American law. I mean, you can, it, it's a prima facie, essentially, basis for a legal case that within any job category, you as an employer with more than 50 employees have less than 80% of the number of blacks or whatever that you would be expected to have employed based simply on population demographics around your business. So there are very real impacts of all this. I mean, Caroline Products and similar cases have brought that into the formal written law. But that's wokeness, essentially. All society structure to hold you down any gap that disfavors you is evidence you're being held down and the solution is equity we need to take from the group that currently is winning and give to the groups that currently are losing i think that's a good uh three-part summary 
Okay. And, and, and how did we get here? How, how did it develop? Is this, you know, a incremental development? Was this a, a shift that some event caused this to shift? Is this because of who is now running higher education institutions? Well, I, I think that final question definitely gets into it. So, I mean, if you look at any of the data on point, I mean, there certainly are legitimate claims from the left against the right as well. You know, I'm a man of the right. I'm not going to make them today. But, I mean, you know, you could talk about health care. You could talk about discrimination and policing in the past. I mean, there, there certainly are arguments there. <laughs> the most striking points made by the right is that there's an incredible misrepresentation of political perspectives across the whole what you could call discursive sector of the USA. So, I mean, when Pew uh, 2004, it's been replicated a couple times since, looked at American national media journalists, they found that the old claim of extreme media bias wasn't just the right kind of working the refs. Uh, 93% of national media journalists were either communists, essentially, leftist, Marxist, liberals, were mostly left-leaning, if you look at their responses to questions about abortion and so on, moderates. It's roughly the same in academia. I mean... If I recall the data from EconLive, the field friendliest to conservatives right now is economics, where we're only um, outnumbered 4.5 to 1. And the least uh, friendly field is sociology, where someone might correct me on this in the comments, but it's 105 to 1. It would be hard to think of a single conservative or traditionalist sociologist, in fact, a single very religious one or anything like that. So, I mean, it, that's definitely the background, that there are a lot of people who are, you know, putting out content, if you will, that have a particular view of the country. And it's often a Marxist view or a post-Marxist feminist view or something like that. Why did ordinary upper middle class people start taking it seriously? That's actually kind of the question of the day, right? Um, my casual buddy, uh, Zach Goldberg, I almost said Jonah Goldberg, very different guy, but Zach Goldberg, uh, actually his PhD dissertation in his first book is called The Great Awakening. And what he finds is that for whatever reason, around 2012, whether you're talking about the attempt to reelect uh, Mr. Obama, Barack Obama at the time, or you're talking about the fir the start of the BLM insanity, uh, Patrice Calore's first hashtag BLM in 2012, I believe. You started seeing in the major newspapers, my own Chicago Tribune made this as like the little brother, but in the uh, New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, L.A. Times, I mean, that's probably pretty much it, mentions of terms like white supremacy, so on down the line, uh, Islamophobia, all of these increased by hundreds of percent every year from this, this very determined starting date, uh, 2011 or 2012, and that had an effect on society. I mean, people started looking for content producers who were going to promote this narrative. I mean, the first of these was really Tanahishi Coates. Someone said that he was Ibram Kendi before Ibram Kendi. But, I mean, he wrote a, I believe, five million selling book called Between the World and Me, where he described his horror at the idea that his young son could be gunned down by the police and so on. You had Ben Crump, Open Season, the legalized genocide of colored people. By that title, like the idea is that there's a genocide going on right now of middle-class black men. I mean, just all this stuff took off at this point. Why did it happen? We're still debating that. I mean, like, literal scientists are unpacking, you know, the archival record of the New York Times like it was, you know, Gebekli Tepe overseas. I mean, what, what prompted this? It's an interesting one. But that's where this, um, this really began. And then I think events in history 
began to get involved. I mean, the Trayvon Martin, uh, George Zimmerman fight did happen. Michael Brown was shot. And those provided kind of springboards for this movement, which just frankly fictionalized them and started creating this this entire narrative of the genocidal modern USA. I mean, I assume you know the actual details. Michael Brown was a you know, linebacker-sized kid who was, I believe, fully adult, who attacked a cop and tried to take the cop's gun. The cop shot him in self-defense, Officer Darren Wilson. But the, the storyline around this became hands up, don't shoot. And, you know, the first bronze statue of one of these guys. And from then on, we were we were off to the races. And le- less common for me, but, like, the, what happened specifically is that what used to be the very fringe paradigms in academia, like the stuff that you would make fun of clove-smoking feminist grad students that were dating one of your friends for studying, like stuff that was really off in black studies, et cetera, departments, became almost mainstream narrative. So, like, critical race theory has always been around. Delgado and Stefanczyk wrote a, a Left of Castro, but an interesting book about it. But none of that was at the center of the academic conversation where people were running time series regressions and so on. But during this period, journalists started focusing on it and became more and more prominent. And you started seeing Kendi, D'Angelo, these people who had names in this sector writing the best-selling books in the country. And I, I think we're now near the end of this. But what it went on is almost a 10-year craze. Okay. Um, how does what you've described now, the woke culture, impact on anti-Israel sentiment, anti-Semitism, especially on college campuses. And of course, this has all been brought to the fore more pronounced uh, since October 7th. How does that impact? Well, I think that's a great question. And there's a very deep impact. And this is, this is to me very problematic. I mean, I've uh, attracted some attention online as an ally of Israel in the ongoing uh, struggle. Not that they necessarily need me, but I mean, it's just the a lot of the things that are being said about Jews and about Israelis in particular are extremely bizarre, like pre-genocide level stuff. I mean, there was a crowd chanting "gas the Jews" and I believe Sydney in Australia. I mean, so that's that's extremely over the line, especially especially in the context of what academia is normally like, where you can be suspended for six weeks for misgendering someone. So uh, unacceptable, but your question is a bit, it's not a moral question, really, it's a strategic one. Why is this happening? I think the answer is pretty simple. Like, if you look at any of these woke theories, from vulgar Marxism to the stuff we're describing, the idea is that people get successful by oppressing other people. That's really it. That's the great liberal insight. This goes back to Rousseau, right? I mean, the first fencers in of property uh, essentially committed a hustle in his mind. You had these almost idyllic villages. Some people became richer than others, and law was created to benefit the rich and armed. I think it's a direct quote. Now, this is nonsensical. I mean, historically, if you look at the spread of, for example, Christianity, I mean, women without a great deal of power were often the people who were most interested in there being a structured order in society for very obvious reasons. But that is the lefty claim. Like, people who are rich got rich by oppressing people who are poor. I mean, this is, this is again, everything. Post-colonial theory. Why does the modern West have so much? Well, it's not the actual guns, germs, and steel explanation, much less the forbidden genetic explanation. It is, which I don't agree with, but whatever. But, I mean, it is this sort of the West looted Haiti. And people will say this did seriously if you read books from the old Third World Press or something like that. And if you ask, well, Haiti's been in control of their resources now for almost 200 years. Why aren't they rich? You'll get just deeper into the BS, like, well, the the Westerners are placing extortionate 
war debt burdens on them or something like that. Rich people get rich by ripping off poor people. So, and I, I think this is the actual point, the more successful you are, the more of an oppressor you must be. And this is for Jews. Because Jews are, with all due respect to my West Africans and East Asians and so on, the most successful group in the country. So if you have this paradigm that success means you are oppressive, you have to find a way that Jews are oppressive. And there's actually a whole literature, which to me borders on blood libel, it focuses on doing this. I mean, like the, the Harlem landlord uh, essays, the, the idea is that, you know, they're the people that run the little grocery stores and the slums. They're the, they're the bankers. I mean, there's a really focused attempt to make Jews uh, somehow at fault for the problems of our society. And again, for, I mean, I assume your audience will probably know that this is false, but I mean, obviously that's, that's not correct. I mean, there's almost no correlation between historical oppression, defeat in war, that kind of thing, and contemporary rates of success. I mean, the highest earning groups in the country are generally, you know, Nigerian Americans sometimes come close, but it's generally Indian Americans, Jewish Americans, Chinese Americans, and all of those groups do not have an easy history in the USA. Uh, so, in reality, the argument is just false. There's no need to go on rambling about that, but that's the idea. The most successful people are the most oppressive. So if Jews are the most successful group in the country, or one of them, then they must be a great group of oppressors. What what sort of business did they run to steal that money from blacks? So why are we seeing this then, um, what appears to be at the most elite of the universities in the United States? The, these are all quote-unquote, successful people. So so they themselves are, are extremely successful, highly accomplished. They got into these universities. They're in positions of power. Well, what, I mean, they why aren't they the oppressors today? Well, I mean, the actual answer, I mean, that one of the things with woke theory is that the questions, and both of us are you know, highly intelligent gentlemen of letters, but, I mean, to a certain extent, it, no, my, my fiancé is also a smart person, but I asked some of these questions the other day. Most intelligent people could just look at some of the woke arguments and say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, and I think, obviously, you're pointing out one of the most obvious issues with this one. The short answer would be that wokists tend to think of themselves as members of large groups, and they tend to think in group terms. And, I mean, this is, again, gets right back to Marx, you know, think of your class. This gets right back to Anzal Dua and the early feminists. Think in terms of your clade, the bridge that is my back. So the idea is that not only should you see oppression or whatever, defeat, underperformance, as due to past abuse, you should also see groups that are dealing with underperformance as groups. You shouldn't look at what exceptional individuals are doing in those groups and suggest that everyone in the group emulate it. That is blaming the victim. There are a hundred other words for it. So as far as I can tell, because I, I view the claim as objectively idiotic, but people who are, say, black or Hispanic or who are white radicals in the Ivy Leagues or in my own Big Ten are engaging in a kind of stolen ballot. They're saying, well, I may be doing well, but that is due to luck or, you know, programs that we forced the government into accepting, like, affirmative action. They're evil. Otherwise, never would have allowed me to be here. You hear that a lot from black kids at Harvard. But at root, I'm black. You know, I care about nothing as much as being black. So my group is oppressed no matter where I may be. 
in, in median terms or whatever we're talking about. And so I'm going to protest oppressor groups. It, yeah, the the actual argument is not a very good one. I find myself just sort of almost dumbly repeating that statement. It, among other things, it ignores the individual. So the critique of the idea that you can do almost anything if you're in a member of an oppressed group is actually quite simple. It's bipartite. One, almost everyone's a member of an oppressed group. So I once, I mentioned feminism once in passing, I once had a debate, and a friendly laughing one, but with a very feminist former partner. And she said, it is inappropriate for men to make certain financial, sexual, emotional, so on demands on me because I'm a woman and I'm a member of a victimized group. And I thought about this for a minute and said, well, I'm black. I'm also a member of a victimized group. Can you make these, these demands to me? And she thought about it for a minute and chuckled and was like, eh, it's a tie. You know, we went and got lunch or whatever. But everyone, if you're old, if you're young, if you're a member of any of the minority groups that make up 40% of the country, so on down the line, you're female, you're gay, 10% of the population, you're a member of any novel made-up gender, so on down the line, you can, you can make this claim of victimization, first of all. And beyond that, there's the reality of the individual. So if you are a white male, but you recently got out of prison or your father was just diagnosed with cancer, you're obviously in practice, not privileged. But the theory is a broad and not especially brilliant one, and it doesn't really recognize these exceptions or these points of logic. The, the argument is just, well, I may be at Harvard, but I'm black. And if you're not black, you're oppressing me because you have more power than I do. What happened to the traditional African-American Jewish alliance? Um, mm. How did it break down? Did it break down? And, and, and how, how does Black Lives Matters uh, end up being in the same group as Free Palestine? How, what do they have in common, the, those, those two movements? Okay, let me note that down. Well, what Black Lives Matter and Free Palestine have in common, just getting to the, the simpler question first, is the idea that you're taking on the oppressor. I mean, there's actually there's actually a great deal of Marxist writing that, and most of it, really, when you look at the original authors, but that extends beyond the United States. I mean, you have Lenin's imperialism, the last stage of capitalism. So the idea is that the same oppressive model that you see in modern Western states where blacks are oppressed by whites, the proletariat is oppressed by the bourgeoisie, women are oppressed by men, so on, that extends into the overseas arena where the quote-unquote global south, which in practice, again, it makes no sense, it's mighty nations like China and India and Pakistan, Nigeria, but is oppressed by the global north. So the original platform of Black Lives Matter and I have a side comment about Black Lives Matter for later on. I don't, I don't think most people understood really what this group was uh, at the start. I noticed when I was doing independent research at one point that BLM had given almost no money to, quote, unquote, the hood, to actual police violence prevention programs, some of which are quite good. Um, the money went to women's gay rights organizations, upper middle class feminist causes, you know, actually pro-Gazan movements, this, this sort of thing. And I, I don't think the ordinary black guy was was aware of that when they were marching. 
But I mean, the original platform of Black Lives Matter wasn't primarily focused on, you know, issues in, quote unquote, the streets. How can we decrease gunfire among our own people or how can we punish truly racist cops? It was focused on these these external Marx inspired issues. I mean, one plank was demolishing the nuclear family, especially the black nuclear family. What we need is fewer black men in the home. Roughly a quote. You know, one plank was free Palestine. This has been the case for a decade. So the idea is that in the internal uh, situation of conflict, whites are the oppressor. And in the external locus of conflict, Western powers like Israel are the oppressor. So it makes perfect sense that a black radical here would also side with Palestine because both the black radical and the Palestinians are fighting the same evil, Westerners in suits or whatever. And if you go back to the Zanj Wars and point out that Bantus and Arabs have a 2,000-year history of killing each other, I mean, that doesn't change much because right now both of those groups are oppressed and white people are the oppressor. There's really nothing beyond that. It's just this kind of high school communist-level theory of the world. And, and the traditional African-American Jewish alliance, um, is, does that still exist? Um, has that broken down? And, and why, why so? Well, I don't think in general. I mean, anti-Semitism to me is a somewhat unique vice because it is such an old and so very targeted racial or ethnic prejudice. I mean, that in the Christian world goes back, obviously, through the perception of the Jews as having killed Christ. You've seen pogroms against the Jews in almost every Western state, in Christian black African states, Muslim states. You've seen pogroms against the Jews. So I don't really think that you can argue that blacks are any more anti-Semitic than most groups. We're certainly less anti-Semitic than Arab Americans, for example. But do I think the old 60s alliance is still there? No. Um, my impression of that would be, and my mother was a black not really academic, but master's degree, school teacher. I ended up living in the hood because she taught in a series of urban schools in this kind of very honorable attempt to help working-class kids, basically. And she was always spoke fondly of Jews. I mean, in the 60s, there had definitely been this sense of we as a people have experienced a great deal of discrimination in the past, and we want to prevent that in other contexts. So... Do black people today recognize that or feel a kinship with Jews? Uh, not in my experience, no. Um, I think that really the civil rights movement, and this is beyond the black Jewish alliance, the civil rights movement kind of dissolved into groups with very different goals. So, I mean, the original focus of the civil rights movement was something that almost everyone outside of the Deep South at least understood. And then if you look at votes on the Civil Rights Act among Republicans and so on, the large majority of people sympathized with. There's a group of people in this country, and by this point, Jews, Irishmen, Italians, so on, had been roughly, let's say, normalized as white. There's a group that's taking a great amount of abuse. Um, a lot of this seems very unjustified, if you look at you know, Martin Luther King in a Brooks Brothers suit speaking at a church podium. We all want to work together to give everyone an equal chance to compete fairly. That was the idea of the civil rights movement, an equal chance to compete fairly. Um, a. Philip Randolph said that in those words before. That's not, it's not an original comment. And blacks, Jews, others, worked, the priesthood worked together toward that. That actually disappeared fairly rapidly. And you can talk about whose fault it was and so on. But, I mean, by 10, 15 years after Brown v. Board, the focus of a lot of black civil rights organizations had moved toward 
reparations for the past, although the term hadn't yet been invented, move toward affirmative action, so on down the line. And there's an inherent conflict between successful and currently unsuccessful groups when it comes to a lot of these things. I mean, simply put, if you're going to insist that every college entering class in an Ivy or Pac-10 or Big Ten university be 15% black, given what test scores currently are in the black community, that means you're going to displace a number of white kids, Jewish kids, Asian kids, so on down the line. So around these issues, a lot of conflict began to develop. And my impression is that those conflicts have never been resolved and have gotten worse. And I don't see how that, to some extent, could be avoided. It's tragic, and there's still many friendships crossing the two groups. But, I mean, if you're talking about uh, African Americans are one of the groups most likely to support the Palestinian cause. So if you are focused at an existential level on getting rid of the state of Israel, it's going to be hard to form alliances with the Jewish community. So that's, that's something that, you know, one would hope both groups work on you know, mending, but that it, that obviously has happened. I mean, in statistical, measurable terms, there there's less of an alliance relationship there. So, uh, in in the big picture, Professor Ali, are, are you optimistic, pessimistic about American society? Uh, where 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 is American society going? And I'm just asking as a, as a general question, not specifically as in in terms of anti-Semitism or anti-Israel sentiment. Are you optimistic or pessimistic? Fairly optimistic to the point. I'm very, I'm actually optimistic about American society in general. But that, that doesn't have all that much to do with blacks or Jews or whatever. It just, it's a matter of technology. I mean, I was scrolling through Twitter today and someone was talking about how gene editing technology is reaching the point where you can generate, in practice, it would be about 120, it's not going to be millions, but dozens of potential egg cells and stem cells for each couple that wants to have kids. So you could pick the the potential offspring you have with the maximal possible IQ uh, free of, I'm sure there'll be limits on what you can do. But, you know, free of the major genetic diseases, I think that's one we can all agree on in the first round of the law. You know, so on that kind of thing, sickle cell, Tay-Sachs. So, I mean, I think because of stuff like that, humans will be taller, smarter, faster, so on in the future. I don't think we'll get any morally worse. I think there would be, you know, some some social provisions against that. So as a techno-optimist, I'm pretty positive about the future. Like, I mean, we might destroy this planet at some point, but by that point, we'll have others. You know, so, I mean, I, I think that the human, the sweep of the human future will probably be a good thing. Um, in terms of race relations for the next 20 years, yeah, those will get worse, probably. I mean, the, the entire, I, you don't want to use terms like cut out a cancer. It's not necessarily that serious. But the entire woke infestation in the major, again, up-middle-class institutions is a serious problem. I mean, and I, I recently talked to some people like Chris Rufo is a friend of mine, uh, Dick Hanania, who wrote uh, The Institutional Roots of Wokeness was the title of the essay. I think it's the title of the book. But, I mean, who've, who've made this point that when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about kind of a battle of theoretical ideas. Like, oh, you're a center-right conservative, and I'm a leftist, and this is how we feel about Foucault. We're talking about structures that exist. So, I mean, I, I come from the business world before academia, and in every company of – I was mostly on sales floors, bullpens, this kind of thing. I mean, so these, these weren't usually even Fortune 1000s, so though they did quite well. But every company with more than 20 employees has an HR department that's full of this stuff. I mean, larger companies, you have a department of diversity, normally 10-plus staffers, senior VP at the top, if not a C-level. 
you know, and it goes beyond that now to not just diversity, but DEI, ESG, SEL, new HR, all that alphabet soup. And to some extent, to stop this, to stop things like the assumption that intelligence tests are racist or promotion of the Palestinian cause as part of the wheel of oppression in major institutions like business and the academy, you'd have to get rid of dozens or hundreds of people in every institution. So I think eventually we're going to do that. Eventually we're going to realize we haven't gone to the moon in a while, and we're going to say we can't spend this amount of money on nonproductive dumb people, frankly, but we're not going to do that for a decade probably, and I'd say a little more than that. Okay, and just a, f- a final final question. Um, okay. As you um, post on Twitter and social media, and um, especially in, in, in the pro-Israel post today, what kind of feedback are you getting? Well, actually, I think this is this is an interesting question because this is the same across all my posts and all my writing. The majority of the feedback I get is from normal taxpaying citizens, and it's ex- so it's the same thing with Israel. I mean. You know, I try to, I'm obviously very pro-Israel, but I try to accurately summarize something like a description of an individual battle-level encounter or whatnot. But a lot of the posts are just kind of statements of the obvious. Like, you know, Hamas could end this this war at any time by surrendering and returning the hostages. That's been said. In fact, that's been said by both sides. Why don't they? Or there's a, the MMA fighter Jake Shields, for some reason, has been posting this intense pro-Palestinian propaganda online. And the other day, one of the posts was a picture of three totally desiccated skeletons. And the the caption said something like, this is what the streets of Gaza City look like. Israel has turned them into hell. And my response was, you know, obviously, these skeletonized bodies are not the result of a war that's been going on for six weeks. You know, you can simply go on Google Lens and find that they date back to other conflicts across the world. One of them was the body of a horse, not a person. I actually put the image into a Google window and switched it. And it was the series of Mustang killings and so on in the U.S. Southwest that came up. You know, tragic to be sure, but it didn't have anything to do with, with the conflict. And when I do that, again, you'll get a few people like, why are you a propagandist? I'm accused of being a Jew quite often. I don't know if accused is the word. But people will tell me that I am a you know a servant of the Zionists and I should go back to Israel and all this. I mean, for the record, I'm black Irish and a bit plains Indian. But um, again, though the the response from normal people, housewives, country lawyers in my area, just business folks, just supporters of one side or the other, is so it's good to hear this. That's very intelligent. That makes sense. Oh, of course that that couldn't happen in. in 40 days. So most of the response that I get, uh, cutting this a bit short, is is positive, like, oh, you seem like to be a decent quant, all right. And then there's the screaming face of the few people that want you to shut up. Okay. Again, this has been a fascinating and, and perspective of uh, Professor um, Wilford Riley from Kentucky State University and urge our listeners and viewers to go online and learn more about Professor Riley and uh, take a look at his uh, his books. Again, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.